You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host from New York, Ankit Panda. And I'm Prashant Parmaswaran from Washington, D.C. And today we're going to talk about one of those, I guess, hot topics that tends to pop up from time to time. Uh, the extent to which India is or is not going to move away from what has been its declaratory nuclear doctrine since 2003, in which it states that it would not be the first one to use nuclear weapons in a conflict conventionally referred to as the so-called no-first-use policy. Uh, This seems to be one of those topics that keeps rearing its head once in a while, and we just had another round of sensationalism around it uh, that's led to some headlines in several international publications, and uh, Ankit has written quite a bit on this topic, including uh, a piece on this recent uh, controversy and what it means not only for India, but also the nuclear arms race and South Asia and broader regional dynamics. So we thought we'd use this opportunity to try and take a look uh, at this on today's podcast. So without further ado, you know, Ankit, much of this debate goes back to the ambiguity surrounding India's so-called, you know, no first use policy in the first place, uh, which you sort of mentioned in your piece. Um, And though it may be necessary and even useful to have some of this ambiguity in India's official policy, it also creates the space for some of the speculation to emerge that that we've sort of talked about and and also linger and re-emerge from time to time. So can you give our listeners a sense of, you know, what India's declaratory nuclear doctrine is that we're talking about, really? And and what is the, the, the nature of this flexibility built within it that you refer to in, in your recent piece as being you know, no first use with Indian characteristics? Yeah, so I was being uh, I was being a little cheeky and taking a few liberties with that, um, but I thought it was an uh, you know an appropriate way to phrase it since uh, you know multiple countries have no first use um, postures, including China, um, and you know there's a various reasons that a country would choose to have that kind of a doctrine. In India's case, uh, when India acquired nuclear weapons, both India and Pakistan broke out in 1998. Um, when India acquired nuclear weapons, it was essentially thinking about them from the perspective of a credible minimum deterrent. So as you mentioned, you know, India um, declared its doctrine formally in 2003, but a draft doctrine had already been um, assembled as early as 1999. And there was little doubt that, you know, India would be a first use country. Um, in fact, if you look at, you know, some of the strategic thinkers behind um, India's nuclear program, like uh, General Sundarji, who was a big part of forming Indian doctrine, you know, the, the thinking that went into eschewing first use, essentially, had to do with an understanding that first use is really only useful for a country when it's uh, conventionally vastly weaker than um, its primary adversaries in a deterrent situation, which India isn't. Uh, With regard to both Pakistan and China, actually, what people forget about China is that the assets that China has actually emplaced around the border with India um, are um, significantly lower than what India has um, along those same areas. So conventionally, India had no need. And the other reason um, that uh, you know India might have looked to go first use if it was looking to compel other countries, uh, nuclear compellence um, hasn't really been um, you know something that too many countries have been willing to take on overtly because it is 
um, obviously going to cross taboos and make other countries really not respect you or like you um, and, you know, treat you as a pariah, essentially. So uh, India obviously didn't go that route either. Um, and, you know, the United States, for example, maintains first use. And there was a big debate here in the final year of the Obama administration about um, a potential no first use declaration. Um, and, you know, some of the opposition to that, again, focused around this idea of U.S. alliances being affected by a no first use declaration um, for U.S. allies that benefit from the nuclear umbrella, like Japan, South Korea and Asia, for example, a, a no first use declaration would um, seriously concern them. Um, so, you know, those are the broad contours. But, you know, uh, like I said, the reason that I talk about no first use with Indian characteristics in my piece is because um, even in the officially declared doctrine, which wasn't released fully, but uh, India did put out a press release in 2003 that goes through some of the uh, contours of this. You know, there's already a caveat carved out for nuclear use in the event of biological and chemical weapon um, attacks. Um, India also says that it would, it would use you know, nuclear weapons, um, not only after an attack against Indian territory, but on Indian forces anywhere, which means that in a hypothetical scenario, if, you know, Pakistan were to use nuclear weapons within its territory on Indian forces, that would also open up. I mean, you know, there's, again, a conversation to be had about um, if that violates no first use or not. I think most Indian analysts would say that doesn't. Um, but, you know, there is that kind of baked in um, ambiguity to it. Uh, so, you know, I'll stop for there. There's a lot more nuance to this, but, uh, you know, we'll uh, hopefully get to some of that over the conversation. Great. Yeah. So now that we have a, a good sense of that, let, let's move on to the source of the most recent round of uh, speculation around potential change to not necessarily India's declaratory nuclear doctrine, but the bounds and the flexibility embedded and baked in within that. So the principal source comes from remarks from uh, Professor Vipin Narang of MIT um, at a nuclear policy conference at Carnegie Endowment, where he cites several passages from a book by India's former national security advisor, Shiv Shankar Menon, um, as indicating that while India would keep in place this declaratory no first use doctrine, it may seek to quote unquote go first in a nuclear crisis. You know, instead of allowing Pakistan to do so as has has traditionally been assumed, if we're talking about uh, potential scenarios uh, around the situation. So, you know, having read those passages passages myself, I, I thought you know may have been a little bit too much made out of it. It seemed like Menon was merely thinking aloud and questioning various aspects of India's doctrine rather than endorsing some kind of shift, which uh, some of the media accounts that came out subsequently may have hyped up a bit. Um, but can you tell us more specifically what uh, Vipin Narang uh, said at the conference with respect to what uh, Menon said, uh, and then what you thought about that and, and uh, the plausibility of whether this rec represents any sort of change in the so-called flexibility that's been baked in. Right. Um, so, you know, I think um, you're absolutely right that there has been a lot of um, sensationalism around this. And specifically, I think, um, you know, I think a lot of people were turning what Vipin said into a stronger claim than it actually was. Um, you know, so Shiv Shankar Menon, first of all, he's a former national security advisor. Um, he's, you know, a very well-known Indian diplomatic national security figure, chooses his words very carefully, famously. Um, and, you know, he's currently out of government. He was formerly the national security advisor under the Congress-led government, um, but currently it's uh, Ajit Doval in that position. So, uh, you know, Menon is writing here um, with a degree of, uh, you know, sanction because he was knowledgeable and privy to these discussions during his time in government. But again, you know, nothing that he writes in this book that he published uh, called Choices last year about the making of Indian foreign policy necessarily can be taken, you know, at face value to weigh on nuclear strategy right now. There are, 
you know, there is some room for interpretation with, for example, you know, his particular choice of tenses in what he writes in the passages. Um, but essentially, uh, you know, there's uh, uh, there's two claims that jumped out to me from both what Vipin picked up on and brought up in his remarks um, and, um, and you know, specifically what Menon writes. So the first is Menon's use of, you know, an allusion to the idea of a comprehensive first strike. So those three words in kind of nuclear strategy literature, going back to Herman Kahn, who, uh, you know, famously talked about a splendid first strike, talk about, you know, refer to the specific idea of a counterforce strike. So I'll just clarify, you know, why that's important for our listeners. So in a nuclear targeting, you basically have two options. You have, uh, you know, your counter value targeting option, which is what most people, most, uh, you know, day-to-day people worry about, which is the idea of a nuclear strike on a major city. Uh, for example, I live in New York City, prime counter counter value target. So, uh, you know, that would be um, an example of a, um, a counter value target and countries, you know, pursue that for varied reasons. And the India-Pakistan balance, it's the idea of, of, in, of inflicting unacceptable damage. So the idea when these two countries broke out, uh, Pakistan maintained first use with credible minimum deterrent. India said no first use with credible minimum deterrent. The idea was that Pakistan would retaliate for um, unacceptable, you know, an Indian conventional assault by uh, launching a strategic nuclear strike against Indian cities, and then India would look to retaliate. So neither side would uh, break out into conflict. But, you know, obviously that hasn't ruled out conflict, and you have this kind of sub-conventional conflict that has really um, accelerated since then, um, culminating most famously, obviously, in the 2008 Mumbai attacks where Pakistan used non-state actors. Anyways, you know, it it goes into the whole idea of the stability-instability paradox where you have this broad level of nuclear stability, but underneath that you get all this sub-conventional fighting that goes on. Um, So, you know, when Menon's talking about a a comprehensive first strike, that's, uh, in a way, that's a, a a new addition to uh, Indian strategic thinking because it had primarily been based around, you know, this credible minimum deterrent where India would actually maintain a fairly modest nuclear stockpile. Uh, India actually, you know, would have the second largest, uh, sorry, the second smallest um, nuclear stockpile of any uh, nuclear state with the exception of North Korea um, going by most war, uh, you know, stockpile estimates. It's not public information how many nuclear weapons India has, but most estimates suggest that it has less than Pakistan does. So the idea was that India would keep just what it needed to attack Pakistani cities um, with the promise of inflicting, you know, massive retaliation, unacceptable damage, preventing a, um, a preventing nuclear escalation. Um, so that's the first part of what Menon talks about. The second part that he talks about is, you know, he refers to this idea of if a country was. Um, uh, that, you know, India would look to use nuclear weapons if an adversary's launch was imminent. And that, you know, should speak for itself uh, why that's a problem um, under the rubric of no first use. Um, but that's not necessarily a problem for the doctrine itself. Um, it, it more, you know, is a strategic choice that if India had essentially very little reason or was nearly certain that Pakistan was about to use nuclear weapons and the way that this would look given nuclear forces right now would be, you know, Pakistan, for example, mobilizing its its, uh, short-range Nasser tactical nuclear weapon batteries uh, within striking range of Indian territory. Um, For example, again, we don't have exact information on how India would look to measure that. Menon doesn't go into detail on that. Um, You know, that India would look to use um, nuclear weapons first. Um, But Prashant, I'll just say one more thing. You know, I mean, the reason why all of this is important is because it essentially helps India solve the third strike problem. Um, the third strike problem has been something that was really introduced when Pakistan developed tactical nuclear weapons. And the reason Pakistan developed those nuclear weapons was because, you know, it was responding to um, 
perceived concerns about India operationalizing this strategy called Cold Start, which hasn't received official sanction, was actually um, referred to by the Indian Army chief earlier this year. That caused a whole other controversy that I think we briefly addressed on the podcast, maybe. Um, yeah, we did. And uh, so, you know, um, the third strike problem is that, you know, in a in a crisis, the way it would go is, you know, there would be a terror attack, uh, something like Mumbai, something like the 2001 attack on parliament. Um the Indian India civilian leaders would face, you know, um, incredible pressure to mobilize conventional forces. They would mobilize. They would look to move into Pakistani territory potentially. Pakistan would use its tactical nuclear weapons, um, which it says it now uses for full spectrum deterrence, which is different from credible minimum deterrence. Full spectrum includes, you know, using nuclear weapons to to deter, um, you know, battlefield level conventional assaults on Pakistani territory. So again, uh, so that happens. Uh, India doesn't see tactical nuclear weapons as tactical at all. For India, they're essentially strategic. So that would, under India's current doctrine, is assumed to lead to a strategic level retaliation, which, you know, on a level sounds rather not credible, right? Uh, Pakistan uses tactical nuclear weapons to take out a few Indian tank tank divisions and New Delhi retaliates by taking out Lahore or Karachi. Um, So you know, part of the problem starts there, but also, you know, once India would retaliate in theory against those Pakistani counter-value targets, then Pakistan would have the ability to retaliate with a third strike. So New Delhi, you know, what Menon talks about is really depriving Pakistan of the ability to undertake that third strike and uh, retaliate against India. So that's where the counter-value targeting comes in, because counter-value targeting focuses on depriving right. and disarming Pakistan of its nuclear forces. All right, so I'll, I'll stop there. Mm-hmm. A lot to dig into. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, the question of if India is sort of changing its, its policy and its strategy and what that might mean. Um, but let's turn briefly to the issue of, you know, whether India can, in fact, uh, change its policy or strategy. So you mentioned, for example, uh, the idea of a splendid first strike or preemptive strike that India could carry out um, against Pakistan's nuclear forces. So, so currently, um, India, you know, as you pointed out, a lot of these estimates are not publicly available. But I would say most estimates would say that the Indians probably can't do that at this stage. But if they were to have increases in technology, ISR capability, so on and so forth, they they might be able to do this at some point further along the lines. But that just plays into what you were outlining earlier, which is this escalatory nuclear dynamic which we've been seeing developing for decades, where Pakistan would just in turn produce more mobile missiles. And then the Indians who need to develop something, you have as a result greater nuclear dangers without really resolving the dilemma that the Indians and the Pakistanis are, are you know, have in the first place. But, uh, and, but maybe I'm sort of overestimating or reading too much into this. Is, is there really a scenario where India could look at an option of, you know, abandoning uh, no first use seriously? Look, so yeah, I want to be very clear on that point, because I think that's been a source of a lot of the confusion that's kind of gone on after this debate started. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Menon doesn't say that. Um, Vipin didn't say that in his remarks. Um, I didn't say that in my piece. In fact, I opened with this idea of, you know, that India isn't about to change its nuclear no first use doctrine, its declaratory doctrine in any way anytime soon. And, you know, there's been a... In fact, uh, mm -hmm. in the piece, you actually went through, you know, reasons why it's not plausible as an option for India. Right, right. You know, there's a bunch of options and we can talk about that too, because for India, its nuclear arsenal now is also a big part of its... um, 
ongoing process towards becoming a nuclear mainstream country. So India, again, has to worry about, you know, how a change in posture would look to the rest of the world um, and how that might affect, you know, for example, some of its civil nuclear cooperation opportunities that it's been pursuing hotly. Uh, so there's a lot of that. So you look like I don't think the, the doctrine is about to change. I don't think Menon thinks it's about to change. The reason that Menon's remarks merit even any discussion is because he was a former national security advisor, because he knows what he's talking about when he uses the words comprehensive first strike, which have a very particular meaning. Um, so that's suggestive of the fact that, you know, those um, ideas are, you know, circulating in um, in Indian strategic circles within the government or had circulated within the government. Um, and look, there's plenty of reason not to go that way, right? Because India, uh, like you said, I mean, first of all, capability-wise, there's just no way that um, India could limit, you know, significant damage um, by undertaking a counterforce strike either preemptively or in response to a Pakistani tactical nuclear weapon use. Um, but the second is, uh, you know, New Delhi knows that if it... Um, starts showing changes to its force structure that suggests that it's actually looking to operationalize anything like preemptive counterforce, um, that's just going to encourage Pakistani arms racing, which is uh, an outcome that really nobody wants. And look, Pakistan's never taken India's no first use pledge seriously, right? And we've already seen this sort of dramatic warhead growth um, within Pakistani strategic forces. So look, there's, you know, there's just a lot of incentives for India not to go down this path. Um, I guess let, let's maybe uh, end on this question, Ankit, on this angle, which is um, we've talked a lot now about uh, if or if not India is going to change its policy, what that might look like, what it might mean. Um, but let's also maybe explore finally uh, the question of, uh, you know, what is the real impact uh, of these continued debates that we're having? I mean, it, uh, just, just so we're clear, um, the fact is that even though we've both made clear on this podcast that there really hasn't been any change in India's policy in spite of all these conversations that have been going on. Um, you know, there have been a number of articles that have appeared in international publications as they have before, noting that there could be some kind of change, even though that change hasn't happened. Um, and given that we're dealing with nuclear weapons, there are, you know, serious stakes involved here. Um, and some of that you were getting into in some of your previous responses, you know, whether it has to do with, um, the regional nuclear balance and, and Pakistan uh, and what it's doing with its arsenal, but also India's own international reputation, considering the fact that uh, India is trying to be on a path towards becoming a normal nuclear power. Um, and there are dynamics that we've talked about before in previous podcasts about the nuclear suppliers group and so on and so forth. Um, so just for our listeners, could you Talk a little bit about uh, the dynamics that are involved uh, substantively for India when these discussions are coming to forth and when it's talking about how to change or not to change its no first use policy. Right. Uh, no, I think that's a that's a great question. And it's a really salient part of this debate, especially in some of the reactions that you've seen from Indian analysts in response to this debate uh, breaking out in the first place, uh, which is that, you know, any any kind of conversation of Indian nuclear doctrine is always received very poorly in New Delhi, where, um, you know, any attempts to insinuate that India is either a proliferation risk, or is at risk of entering an arms race with Pakistan, or may um, alter its nuclear posture to essentially be more aggressive. Um, all of those uh, go over very poorly in New Delhi, because there is this ongoing Indian project to um, establish this bespoke status as a nuclear weapon state outside of the you know regime of the nuclear non-proliferation treaty india tested nuclear weapons too late 
to um, be considered a nuclear weapon state under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which is a point that you'll hear quite commonly um, in uh, in India, which uh, you know justifies, which eventually you know um, India has a lot of thoughts about the way uh, the NPT is a, a deeply unfair treaty in some ways, and the ways that it demarcates certain countries nuclear weapon states based on when they tested. Um, but you know, look, I mean, obviously India isn't going to, you know, start disarming anytime soon either. It it clearly values the deterrent that it receives against Pakistan from its nuclear weapons. Um, another aspect of this all is, you know, how um, how anything like what we're talking about, uh, you know, like Menon's remarks, previous remarks by high-level Indian officials, for example, former Defense Minister Manohar Parikar, uh, you know, he was he claimed to be speaking in his personal capacity, which I don't think is personally possible as a uh, sitting defense minister, but, you know, he, he, he very publicly questioned no first use, um, and he said that, you know, why should we stick to that? Uh, India should, uh, you know, look outside, and the BJP and its election manifesto had also hinted at revising it. So, you know, anytime you, we get these hints from either serving or former Indian officials, and there aren't too many examples. I mean, Menon is really the latest one, and he's one of the more interesting ones because he chooses his words so carefully and knows what he's talking about. But every time this happens, you know, in a way, um, Pakistani analysts and strategic thinkers will use it to justify their um, everything that they're doing with their nuclear forces, for example, which includes, you know, growing their warhead stockpiles, pursuing these survivable systems that we've talked about very recently on the podcast, including you know, sea-based platforms with the new Bobber 3 submarine launch cruise missile, looking into multiple re-entry vehicles with the new Ababil missile. Um, so everything that Pakistan is doing, in a sense, uh, you know, Pakistani analysts will see stuff like this and they'll say, look, we're we're absolutely vindicated. If India is thinking about counterforce targeting or preemption, uh, we need to do whatever we can to make our forces more survivable and, you know, more horizontally distributed. So, um I think, you know, that's another one of the big consequences here. And there's, again, you know, there's consequences within India about how, uh, you know, whenever there's a nuclear debate, how it sort of, um, you know, meshes with the broader political debate, civil military relations, spending priorities in the country on defense, which is already a really hot topic. So, uh, you know, these are some of the secondary consequences that come out of um, a conversation like this. But, um, but you know, like you said, I mean, this is important. Uh, these two countries are some of the most population-dense areas in the world with uh, nuclear weapons, their neighbors, their rivals. Uh, the possibility of nuclear use, um, you know, uh, I'm not comfortable enough to say that it's it's a remote possibility at all. In fact, it's it's a very real kind of sort of Damocles that hangs over policymakers in both New Delhi and Islamabad. Um, and, uh, you know, the consequences here are life or death for millions. So really, uh, it's um, it's worth taking even, you know, small remarks by former officials very seriously in that regard. Yeah. Um, so that's uh, a sober, but uh, I think important note to end on, Ankit. So I think we'll leave it there for now, if that's okay with you. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for leading the yeah. conversation today. Um, and to our listeners, thanks for listening. And as, and as always, if you enjoy the podcast, leave us a review. And if you have suggestions for topics, leave Ankit or I a note. And thanks for joining us. Great. Awesome. That was good. All right. Great. Yeah. Uh, let me just. I didn't do too bad on the uh, on the end there. No. No.